Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to mention that this will be the last episode of the second season, and I just wanted to take this time and opportunity to thank everyone that tunes into the episodes. I'm super grateful. I really enjoy doing this, and I didn't think I'd come out with this many episodes. I also wanted to take the time to thank the guests who've come on this podcast, who have shared their stories, who have been vulnerable, and who have given me the opportunity to have a conversation with. I'm super grateful for that as well. But to kick this week's episode off, I welcome Brad, who's also known as Middle Age Survivor on Instagram. This podcast episode was really powerful for me because the biggest message I took out of it was around mindset. In this episode, Brad shares his story of going to prison for a white collar crime. Brad mentions that when his sentence started off, he had so much bitterness and resentment. And over time, he wanted to gain control. He wanted to change his mindset and focus on himself. Brad's comment to me was he chose to not be imprisoned by his own thoughts and limitations, even though he was in prison. And that's something that was impactful for me because we can all do that. In this episode, Brad also explains how his new mindset allowed him to work on himself and maintain communication with his family while he was in prison. We also discussed Brad's relationship with his children and wife after he finished his time and something that he works on every day. I really hope you get a lot out of this episode. And if at the end, you could leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. Well, Brad, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for doing this with me. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to chat with you today. And uh, before we get started with our conversation, I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself, maybe talk a little bit about what it is that you do and where you're located for just for the listeners. Sure. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me this morning. Um, my, as I said, as you said, my name is Brad. I go by the middle-aged survivor yeah. on uh, on Twitter. So my handle is at, at aged underscore survivor. Um, I don't remember how I came up with that name. The truth of it is I was bored to death. I have a, I have a car dealership in, in my local town here and a mechanic shop. And when COVID hit, it pretty well just closed everything down for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I'd come across, I can't remember something on Twitter about, you know, anonymous accounts and talking about your, you know, thoughts and whatever. And so I'd always been a journaler. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, that might be interesting. So somehow I came up with middle-aged survivor. I'm 45 years old. I was 43 at the time. Yeah. And I thought I've survived some, some real crap in my life. And so, you know, maybe that's a good handle. So anyway, so that's kind of how it started. Um, I spent a bunch of years in a federal prison for a white collar crime. Mm. Um, this was 2000 and let's see, 2009. No, 2010 to 2015. Okay. Uh, had, had a young family. So I've been home. I've been out longer than I was in at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's been a battle to go from a certain pinnacle of lifestyle, which we had to total disaster, separation, 
severe suffering over a period of time and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then rebuilding. And so that's kind of what I write about. That's my main message about the fact that it's never so dark. It's mm-hmm. never so far down that you can't recover. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean some things aren't recoverable. There are things that you will lose. There are experiences and relationships that you can never get back. Um, but life is not lost. Mm-hmm. And um, happiness doesn't have to be lost forever. So that's me. I still do have a local business here. I have car dealership. I have uh, an auto glass business, which occupies most of my day uh, yeah. replacing windshields. And uh, in fact, the last podcast I did, I had double scheduled myself the podcast and a couple of jobs. And so I was sitting in my sitting in my window van on my phone trying to do a podcast. It didn't go very well. But uh, anyway, so I guess that's a brief introduction. I'm married. I have four children. My sons are 21 and 19. Uh, my oldest is engaged to be married. I have daughters that are 16 and 12. And so I've got a I got a pretty full life. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned the white collar crime and, and then obviously the journey through that. Uh, do you mind maybe sharing a little bit what it was like? And then we'll obviously get into the journey, as you said, like the, the whole experience. Ooh, it was a terrible experience, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a we had a trading business that uh, a, a handful of partners we were involved in. Uh, it was kind of a classic story. We did really good for a period of time. And then we started to struggle and, and make some mistakes and lose some money. And then of course, instead of really, really the whole story is about dishonesty. That's really what it's about. And so instead of owning up to the mistakes, owning up to the losses, it was, you know, Oh no, things are going great and whatever else over a period of time. And anytime you tell a lie, essentially, on an email or a phone call, you're you're considered to be committing wire fraud. It's a pretty broad statute. Mm. And I did that, and I did that over a period of about six months where mm. kind of covered up and whatever else. And so that's what that's what got it all started. Um I, truth of it is, when I think back, I can't even remember how it all got rolled into, you know, the feds and they got involved. And um, we had a really large white collar case in this region right before that, you know, like $280 million mm. that the guy had basically just pilfered and spent, you know. And so there was quite a bit of um, quite a bit of scrutiny yeah. on the area after that. I mean, my case was tiny in comparison mm-hmm. to that. It was they weren't really similar, but uh, that was that was part of part of the, the reason we were so scrutinized. But anyway, I. Uh, we, we made an agreement, um, expected a, expected a two-year sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, a pretty shocking thing. So I went in expecting two years uh, with some of the rules, good time, that kind of stuff. I figured I'd be home in a maximum of 14 months. We thought maybe even 11. Mm-hmm. I was going to leave in December, right before Christmas, and then hopefully be home before the next Christmas. So only miss one Christmas. Yeah, that was kind. That was kind of the you know that was kind of the thing we told my children. They were young at the time. Yeah, walked into the courtroom and I was given a long sentence, almost almost six year sentence, and even you know did did five in the end. Yeah, I can say that that was a shocking moment because it felt like an interminable amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things I talk about on my page a lot is, 
my relationship with my wife and her strength and holding our family together during that time. When I came out of that sentencing hearing, I said to her, she didn't go. I didn't want her there. It was too emotional. Yeah. I said to her, I said to her, you know, this is what I got. It's, you know, it's over. My life is over and, you know, you're going to have to divorce me and move on because I'm going to be gone so long. And words to that effect. Yeah. And, and her response was really fascinating because she looked at me and said, I committed to this thing for the long run and I'm committed now and I'm not going to do that. We're just going to work it out and tough it out together. So um, that's kind of a hallmark of what I write about is how the strength of our relationship not only helped me survive difficult times, but it made it so my children who were suffering terribly from the loss of their father were able to maintain some level of stability and have come out the other side, certainly with trauma and some challenge from their experiences, um, but also with strength and strong feelings of family unit and that sort of thing. So that was kind of a special moment. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a handful of weeks later, I was, Hauled away to a hauled away to a federal prison. Yeah, and you know spent the years there. That was a, you know I I had never. There's a lot of guys I did time with that watched their parents go to prison. They'd been in and out themselves. It was a fairly common thing. You know they yeah. kind of knew about it. I'd never even been inside a courtroom. I'd never been sued. I'd never sued anybody. It was a real uh, eye opening experience to. Uh, go through that process and then be processed into a, into a prison and, you know, figure out how to live there over time. And the cool thing about it was, I shouldn't say cool, but the interesting thing was Mm -hmm. I found that the rules that apply in life, uh, the things that make you happy on the outside in the free world are the exact same things that make you happy on the inside. Mm. Uh, Turns out that over time I had what I could even term a good existence, a happy existence. It was a stunted and partial existence, but I did everything I could with what I had. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't look back on those years with, I look back on them with regret mm-hmm. from the standpoint of all the things I missed with my family. Those yeah. are devastating things, birthdays, Christmases, baptisms, family events, you know, those sorts of things you never get back. And and the, and the thousands of hours of just domestic harmony that I missed, you know, being Mm -hmm. in the home. I do feel horrible regret Mm -hmm. and pain every day about those losses. However, I can say, I can look at myself today and say, I'm, I'm happy with who I am, comfortable with who I am today. And part of that is because of that experience. Mm -hmm. And so I don't even do the what if, like, well, if I hadn't done this, that wouldn't have happened. You know, this is my collective experience and this is where I'm at in life and this is why. And so I kind of accept it as a, as one whole. And that, that helps to not descend into bitterness and frustration and anger because that just sucks your life away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know a lot of guys that got in, got out, but never really got out because they still are fighting the frustration. Well, I got cheated and it wasn't fair and I shouldn't have had to do my time. And look at, you know, what was me type of a mentality. Mm-hmm. And in the end, those people never, ever get out of prison. They stay in prison because of their bitterness forever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the gist of my story is that, you know, that, that whole process and the rock bottom and all that sort of thing, it's really terrible when you're in the moment. Right. Um, but in hindsight, like everything else, 
you can see the values, the value and the strength that you've gained from really, really, really hard times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, there's so much I want to explore with you based on that. And and one of the things I'm understanding is, is really it was a mindset thing for you, um, as opposed to some of the other people you were referring to. Um, I guess to kind of tap into that a little bit, was that your mindset going in or over time it evolved uh, as you were spending time in prison? It, it evolved. Um, I had read numerous times in my life, Man's Search for Meaning. My dad was a real reader and he loved Viktor Frankl. And so I had read that previously. Mm-hmm. And so not knowing what I was going to experience, I tried to prepare myself. Well, here's some things that I could have as a purpose for these next years. And this is how I'm going to handle this and that and the other thing. And so I thought that I had it all figured out before I showed up there. Um, But there was something shocking of standing on a sidewalk outside of a federal prison, surrounded by other federal prisons in a very stark and barren landscape in my socks, in six inches of snow, Mm. waiting to be processed in that threw all of those things into chaos. Mm -hmm. And from my first year, I really did um, not have a positive mindset. I was super, super bitter and angry. Mm-hmm. I planned revenge on my partners that I felt like had sold me out. I planned revenge on the judge and the prosecutors and the FBI agents and the people that I felt like had been disingenuous and dishonest. And some of the things I thought about them were true of what yeah. had happened. And some, some were not, of course, like anytime mm-hmm. we're angry at people, but I really did spend a year in absolute, um, downward spiral, an absolute downward spiral, mostly because of bitterness, resentment, mm-hmm. unwillingness to let go of my own pride, um, that sort of thing. So I, I thought I was going in with a proper mindset. I wasn't. Uh, it took a solid year yeah. to let go of all of that uh, angst and blame and bitterness and that's when things really started to change for me. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've said this on, I've been on a handful of podcasts, most of them guys I've been on Twitter. And I, I tell this story every time because this is kind of the genesis of, of how I survived and how I try to teach others to get through hard times. So <clears throat> as I told you, I journaled throughout my life. Uh, I had written quite a bit in that first year, but it was so negative. It, it wasn't mm-hmm. very useful. And most of that stuff I threw away. I kind of wish I'd had it now. It would be interesting to read it, but it was pretty dark. Mm-hmm. When you're locked up, you have almost unlimited amounts of time to think. Mm-hmm. And it's day after day, week after week, month after month, hour after hour. You have to be back in yourself for count times and the lights go out and it's dark and you're in there all the night long till the morning. You can't get up and go anywhere. You can't get up and turn on the television like you do at home, whatever. You're pretty well just stuck. Yeah. And you do a lot of self-hatred and recrimination and whatever. And for whatever reason, one particular night, I kind of decided I was sick of being mad at everybody else. And it was time to take ownership of my mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so I got out a yellow pad, a yellow legal pad, which is why I like to write on left-handed because I don't like things that from the spiral on the side. So I need yeah. the flip top there. And I started to write in list form, all of the things that I hated about myself, mm. you know, all the negative character traits, all the things that I just thought were just terrible. And also I started to write in sentence and paragraph forms, the mistakes that I've made. 
Well, mm-hmm. I, I did this to this person. I told this lie. I was rude at this point. And it was shocking that over like a day or more, I kept remembering things clear back to my childhood that I had done that I should have apologized for. Mm-hmm. And I wrote them all, I wrote them all down to where I was like totally laid bare. Yeah. Um, and it's not a religious thing, but there is one thing that religions do. A lot of religions do get right is there is real power in confession. Mm. There's power in, in, um, unburdening your soul, maybe of all your mistakes. You know, I was just doing it on a piece of paper to myself. The cool part about it was, as I did that, it wasn't that my hatred got worse is that I began to understand my mistakes and understand myself in a, in a better light and a more honest light. Mm-hmm. And that process of self-honesty led me to then making a list of things that were good about me and positive strengths that I had. And that list was much short, shorter. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing about that experience was I learned that honesty with yourself changes everything. Mm-hmm. You have to accept the dark that you have, and the light, because we both have both, you know, yeah. we are, we all have both. Everybody's yeah. got both. So that was a really cathartic and life-changing event to be so honest with myself that there was nothing. I, I couldn't think of one other thing I had done wrong. Yeah. One, one other character trait that was negative, one other personality disorder, you might call it that, that led me to some of my mistakes that put me in, put me in prison and that had harmed my relationships and whatever else. The amazing thing that happens when you do that is then you can start to pluck things off of that list, the negative side and work on them mm. one small thing at a time. Yeah. But it, that was a, that was a, how would you call it? I don't even know what to call it. But that was a launch pad moment. Mm. And so from then on out, I gave up all my revenge thoughts. I gave up all my, you know, desire to get back at everybody and I'm going to clear my name and tell what really happened. And these people did all these forget about it. Yeah. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to work on my, you know, how to keep my family together. How am I going to provide for them when I get out making plans and getting fit and all the things that I could do. Mm-hmm. I did. And so, but it all started with that mm. honest self-assessment, which took hours and hours and hours, but I had the time, you know? So that was kind of a, that was the watershed moment for me. And from then on out, my mindset was pretty, pretty good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean my life was pretty good. I still had to call home every other night and talk to my children. And that was heartbreaking every other night, heartbreaking. And I had to, I had to have get emails from my wife about the financial struggles and about struggles with the children and struggles with this and that and the other thing. And it was heartbreaking because there wasn't a damn thing I could do about anything. Mm-hmm. So the heartbreak and the pain and the suffering didn't go away, but I found that I was much better equipped to cope with it yeah. um, because of that experience. And so from then on out, my mindset totally changed and developed. I feel like a really healthy mindset, mm-hmm. a healthier spirit, healthier body, everything kind of combined together. And, you know, coming home, you would think would be just great. Oh, you're out in your home, but yeah. it wasn't, it was mm-hmm. a challenge. And so then there was another transition that had to be made and I think that that's life. I think we all have to be making transitions all the time, mm-hmm. but those transitions can't be made without a mindset of uh, mental honesty, complete honesty about yourself has to be honesty about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and we'll definitely get into that. Um, I think the, the, at least very powerful, what you mentioned, and, and one of the things I wanted to kind of expand on is, 
I think it's part of our process and it's okay to have those bitter thoughts, but not yeah. let ourselves be consumed by them forever. And, yeah. you know, what I noticed in your story is as soon as you realize that, okay, I can't control what others did or what happened, but what I can control is how I show up in this moment uh, for the next few years um, and, and focus on the things that are in my control. That is such a powerful shift. And I think you, you've mentioned it and you experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it even, it even happens now, you know, yeah. like when, when COVID hit and pretty well put us out of business, I was making a decent living, not getting rich, but we were doing okay. And I had a, just a kind of a fledgling business and it was growing and, and all of a sudden it was, uh, all of a sudden it was over basically. And man, I was mad. I was mad at, Dr. What's his name? Felucci, Ferrucci, whatever his name is. And I was mad at the government. I was mad at everybody. And I, I was mad at people that wore masks. And I was mad at people that made me close my business. You know, and I was totally irrational mm -hmm. and go through the same process. Well, you know, so, so that process is ongoing. Yeah. So the process of the process of, of what you're talking about. It's a, it really is almost a daily event. Yes. If you're, in, if you're interested in long-term, real growth and becoming the best you can be it's a daily event yeah yeah what i like about uh stoicism i don't know if you're familiar with but yeah. marcus marcus aurelius would wake up every morning and journal and he would tell himself that he's going to come across people that will irritate him will be ignorant and i think that's part of it is right we're we're never going to see eye to eye with everyone and there are people who are going to irritate us and we're going to do the same to others but to your point, it's it's being able to realize what can I do? How can I control this? And, and you know, I, I appreciate that about what you shared. So I, I guess, you know, you talked about the, the challenges that then came when you, you were out and especially around your family. Like, how were your, like, I want to first focus on your children because I know you've mentioned that quite a bit. Like, how were you able to resolve that? Like, what kind of, trauma or anxiety were they dealing with and and what were you able to do when you were out in terms of repairing that relationship that's a good question children are different mm -hmm. and the same your own children at least in my case are very forgiving very understanding very honest um but they're really willing to just they just want their dad, mm. you know, they don't care what I did, what happened. They just wanted their dad home. Mm. And as I mentioned, we talked on the phone. I had 15 minutes every other day. Yeah. It was really expensive, but it was the best thing I could do to stay in contact with them. So I would speak to my kids for about two minutes apiece, say goodnight, basically, and then speak to my wife for a few minutes. And that was kind of what we had. So we had maintained relationship. I wrote letters to them all the time. They wrote back sometimes, not all that often, but I wrote letters to them sometimes every day, often, always every week. So we'd maintained a connection. It was far enough away from home and it was expensive enough that they only came out to see me a couple of times. So I hadn't really seen them. Mm -hmm. When they first came home, they just wanted to be around me. That, that's all that mattered. They mm -hmm. wanted to sit by me, hold hands, talk, touch, renew feelings that really they'd forgotten. I mean, my daughters were quite young. My youngest was 
had no memory of me. In fact, the first time she came out to see me, she did not recognize me Mm. and was really standoffish and shy because she didn't know who I was at first, which was heartbreaking in and of itself. Yeah. I found that once I started to, I I thought I would just come home and reinsert myself into the family, like no big deal. And I really didn't, it really didn't happen. It was more like I was a visiting family member at first. Mm. Um, but they were trying, especially my daughters were trying really hard to integrate me into the family. And it just took time, kindness, patience, uh, and then always being willing to listen and talk. And one of the things that we have done, and that's been talk about how we felt about the experience and my, my, my children are all very different. So my oldest son is not very expressive doesn't talk about his feelings, doesn't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. But I pressed him a little, you know, what did it feel like when I left and what were some of your experiences? And he's been a little open. My second son, very expressive, angry, you know, you left me and I'm pissed about it. And he's, mm-hmm. he's 19 and he still sometimes will lash out at me because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know that those types of things will ever get repaired. Yeah. My youngest child suffered terrible, severe, severe uh, separation anxiety, mm. and that hasn't gone away. She's 12 years old, very smart, very capable, but suffers very bad from social anxieties and some of those things. And we're slowly working through them and we're making progress, but <clears throat> it, it has been a, a real challenge. But the thing that was never, ever lost, and this is the key, I would say. The thing that was never lost is they always knew that if I could, I would be with them mm-hmm. and that I loved them more than I loved anything else on earth. Every night on the phone, when I, that's what I ended the call with. You know, you're special. I love you. God sent you to me. I'm, I'm honored to be your father and I love you. And that's what I stuck with. It was every other night for all those years. And then when I came home and before I left, we showed that we loved them in that way. And, and, and I love you, good night, and hugs, and kisses, and support, and all the things that good parents do. Mm-hmm. It was that it was that uh, thread of unbroken love and kinship that made the reentry into society, which was plenty difficult. At least yeah. the reentry into my my home made it possible. Mm-hmm. It's shocking to me how many people that I was incarcerated with who I now I have I have contact over a lot of friends. I made a lot of friends and I still have contact with a lot of them. Yeah, they're 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 they struggled mightily because uh, the, the anger of their children never, ever relented. And so I've been really lucky in that regard. And I think a lot of that has to do with how we talked. A lot of it has to do with the way my wife, although she hated me in her own way mm-hmm. and her and I have had a rocky road, but we work on it every day. She never spoke ill of me while I was gone mm. and never spoke of me like this distant figure. It was always kind of like dad's on a business trip type of a type of an attitude. And I think that helped too. Yeah. So, you know, I try to never, ever let a minute go by where I'm not expressing in action or deed how I feel about my kids, even now where they're getting to be adults um, like I said, my oldest son is engaged and we treat his fiance the same way. She's yeah. part of the family now. And, and I think that's, I think that's real key, a real mm-hmm. key. Mm-hmm. So, and, and do you, 
tend to have conversations because often you know like you mentioned your your other son he lashes out like are there conversations around it or or like obviously I'm, I'm sure you've told them you know you've asked for forgiveness but yeah. yep. do those things feelings when they do come up like how are you talking about them today now um in two ways one I get a little testy with him in particular mm. because he uses it as a crutch sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't allow that. Yeah. And so I will say to him, you know, toughen up you big baby, you know, everybody goes through hard stuff and that's no crutch and you're going to have to just get on with it. Consequently, he just went through cancer treatment and uh, lost all of his hair and, He's doing well now and he's in recovery basically, but that was a shocking thing for an 18, then 18 year old to have to go through. So he's had some real trauma. Yeah. So he feels that he feels that bitterness a little bit about me leaving for those years. And then he got, you know, he got, he got sick and, you know, could have died and all these other things and lost all of his hair, went through all the chemotherapy and all that kind of crap. So he's had, he's had a rocky road, mm. but I feel like he survived it pretty well because we've always, been fairly tough when it comes to mental toughness you just got to keep trying yeah. that's one thing that's one thing but the second thing is is we never we can tell him we can tell them not to use it as a crutch but also not say well that's not you don't really feel that way or get over it it's been all these years oh no if you want to talk about it i'm going to talk about it mm. now if i feel like you're being punitive and just looking for an excuse to not do something or be something that I won't accept it. Yeah. But from a standpoint of just talking about it, we do that all the time. We try to have family dinners as often as we can. Uh, Sundays we only spend at home. We don't go places. We don't, um, we don't have company really. We just spend the day with us and we have, we go to church in the morning and then we have lunch where we sit around the table and talk. And then we, you know, take naps and whatever else you do on Sunday. And then we have an early dinner where we sit around the table and talk some more. And then we, you know, whatever. So Sundays are a special day where we talk and express. And it's a, it's a real, um, that thing's a real life changer for us. Sundays are a real life changer. And we guard our Sunday time. Like it's, you know, we're real jealous about that time. We don't, we don't give it up for anything. Yeah. So, so I'd say we're totally open to talking, uh, but we are not willing to allow what happened in the past to be a crutch mm -hmm. yeah no that's important and and I guess you know you talked about repairing with your wife like what was that like and I'm assuming obviously it was different uh like you said children are more accepting they they yes. want they just wanted their father but with your wife like how was that and especially I'm sure she carried that burden for so many years of managing the entire family like mm -hmm. what was that like for her and and your relationship hard mm. really hard uh and it's still hard um she was completely blindsided by what happened had no idea that there were problems i kept her in the dark also obviously terrible error because if she'd have known early on she'd have blown the whistle right off the bat she'd mm -hmm. never tell a lie in her life you know she's she's a she's a real She's a real saint. You know, I don't know about believing in saints, but she's a living saint. Yeah. Her experience keeping the family together, she went to nursing school while I was gone. She put food on the table. She made it so the kids didn't suffer for anything. I don't know how, truthfully, I don't know how she survived it. Mm. 
one of the biggest challenges is she worked so hard and had no time for herself, no time for recreation, no time for relaxation. And then she created a real hard shell around herself so as not to deal with some of the things she was dealing with. Mm-hmm. That didn't go away. And so the process of opening herself back up has been really, really hard. Mm. And anytime there's a bump in the road, like when the dealership went bad and all of a sudden we're broke, all those defenses come back up again. Mm -hmm. Currently, right as we're speaking today, uh, the windshield business, I've got a huge accounts receivable that is past due and is putting a squeeze on us. And, and boy, those defenses come back and old feelings come back. And boy, if we'd have done this or if this hadn't happened, and she does that sometimes. Yeah. So our relationship requires constant. In fact, I wrote a, I wrote a thread on Twitter about it yesterday. That's rolling pretty good. A lot of people are interested in about the steps that we take to survive. And one of those is we deal with grievances immediately. Mm. If she has a feeling about me, even if it's unreasonable, she airs it and vice versa. If I think she's being reasonable, I tell her it's kind of brutal. It's probably not what a marriage counselor would do, but we don't let stuff fester. We get it out. Mm. We totally tell the truth about everything all the time. And, you know, we have a shared vision. And and so that's kind of what keeps us together. And I mean, that's not very romantic, but the thing that keeps us together and moving in the same direction is we have a shared vision of building this family legacy for our children and grandchildren. Yeah. And sometimes that means sticking together when we'd rather not. Mm. And so we're pretty honest about that. Um, the, the, the building of our marriage, rebuilding of our marriage is a daily challenge and I will say this about trust. Once it's lost, you never can get it back. So mm-hmm. she feels, she said this to me early on and I was really offended by it and didn't like it. Uh, during the time we had two sets of friends who were going through in a situation where the husband or wife had had an affair and devastating, obviously. Mm-hmm. And she said to me one time, well, that's how I feel. The, the, the broken trust and the pain and suffering you caused me, she said to me, is the same that so-and-so is going through because her husband had an affair. And I thought that was terrible and ridiculous and not fair and they're not the same and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But since I've gone to recognize the broken trust is broken trust. Yeah. And, and once it's broken, it can never be regained. It can be rebuilt to some degree but it's never like it was before. So if you can, one of the things I preach constantly is complete honesty with yourself and complete honesty with everyone else. Just yeah. don't tell lies. It makes your life a lot better. Yeah. And so that that's a big deal. Um, but it's hard. I'll tell you. I mean, we have to work at it every single day. Mm-hmm. We're in our forties. We have children. We have financial responsibilities. We have burdens. You know, we were starting over again after I got out. And not only starting over again, but starting over again with a federal felony, which precludes me from doing almost any job. I can't even go to work at Walmart as a checker because I have a white collar felony. Um, I can't even get the menial jobs that most people would get. I can't be a truck driver because I have epilepsy. I can't, you know, so there were so many, there's so many things in the way 
of moving on and having a normal life. And so it's a daily challenge to, you know, get things done, make sure we have substantial, substantial amount of income and everything else. And so, you know, I don't know if you're married. Are you married? No, I'm divorced. Okay. So, you know, it's hard. It's stinking hard. Yeah. And, and it has to be two people with the same goal, both working as hard as they can to keep it together. And that's really hard. And even mm-hmm. under those circumstances, sometimes it goes sideways. Yeah. And so I would not say that we're ever out of the woods. You know, we're probably in danger of falling apart at every second, at every second. Yeah. But we do have a shared goal and we work at it together as best we can. But it was rocky because she wasn't like my children where it was just automatic forgiveness. And dad, we're so glad you're home. And gosh, we don't care about anything else. She has a lot of hard feelings, yeah, tons of hard feelings. And then I have hard feelings because she can't forgive. And what's the matter with you? And why can't you forgive? And so it's kind of this cycle. And we cycle. I mean, we there's probably once a week where yeah. we go through that cycle. And and I wish we didn't, but we've yet to figure that out. So we we keep working at it. So it's a yeah. it's a challenge. But I don't know that it's any more of a challenge than any other couple who has one or the other has broken trust or made a mistake, which is common, of course, mm-hmm. but I think we're about the same as everybody. It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it's important that you mentioned the, the aspect around having that shared vision, because that keeps you at least somewhat on track. Even if you fall yeah. off, you're able to get back on right. uh, and, and continue moving in that direction. But I guess to kind of bring it back to yourself, how does it feel like, I mean, obviously I can't understand to, to know that, okay, you know, you've gone through that experience, you've learned from it and you want to do better, but you're still kind of in that prison of resentment. Mm -hmm. How do you keep yourself, you know, maintain that same vision, as you've mentioned, like of keeping this family together and continue to move forward with all the challenges you've already shared. And I'm sure there's others that you haven't talked about yet. But yeah, what keeps you going then? I'm a I'm a ridiculously optimistic person by nature, which sometimes gets me into trouble. <laughs> um, but that's natural for me to be optimistic and expect good things to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they generally don't, but for some reason, it never knocks my faith off. I'm always yeah. just optimistic. That helps. Mm-hmm. Some people are just more traditionally and and just the way they are they're more negative and that's more difficult in that way so I'm, I'm i'm ridiculously optimistic i am almost forgiving to a fault at this point in my life um, once i gave up my bitterness about other people i pretty well have never gotten it back mm. i just don't you know I'm, I'm ridiculously forgiving so i don't allow others behavior to affect my own mood my own emotional status for example, yesterday is a great example. I have one particular customer who owes me like $10,000 and it's way past due. I need it trying to run a small business, trying to run a household. Yeah. And here it was the end of Friday, April 1st, and I didn't get it. Mm. And now it's going to get, it's going to escalate. And I came home very upset, obviously, but I just, I was home and it was like, I thought to myself, okay, I'm here. I'm with my family. I've got this weekend. Why am I going to let that guy's bad behavior now? I wish I had the $10,000. I could really use it. Yeah. But I got food in my fridge and, you know, I'm not, 
about to get thrown out of my house. And I'm not going to allow that particular situation to sink me for the whole weekend and take away my opportunities to have good, memorable experiences with my children, Mm -hmm. especially with my kids, with my wife, with my stupid dogs, with the weather, you know, clean the garage, work in the yard, all the normal things you do every day make me happy. Turns out, you know, Mm -hmm. go and do a little fishing this afternoon, whatever. Being joyful and happy has absolutely nothing to do with traveling to Paris or having these big events. I mentioned the word domestic harmonies earlier. The things that I missed while I was gone were domestic harmony. And that's where I find my joy is in the domestic harmony. Uh, I always make, I make homemade pizza. I make pizza from scratch on Saturdays. Yeah. I don't know if it's good. Everybody thinks it's pretty good. I enjoy making it. It's not a big deal. It's a couple hours, but it's something we do. The kids look forward to it. I look forward to it. It's like a domestic harmony that we do that keeps us all together. Mm -hmm. Those are the types of things that joy is made of. Even something so stupid as going out and raking the yard together. They don't like doing it. They grumble. I grumble. My back hurts. My hands hurt, whatever. But if I can keep all of the noise of the world, I don't watch the news. I don't watch the news. Mm -hmm. This is so funny. We're so unconnected to current events that my wife calls Vladimir Putin. and She calls him Putnam because she doesn't even really know who he is. So she'll say things to me like, what, you know, what's that Putnam done? I saw something about, you know, Putnam and that just cracks me up. So I can't ever already say his name without saying Putnam. <laughs> and so we pretty well try to keep those outside influences. Obviously you need to know what's happening in the world, but most of the crap you don't need to know. So I avoid it. We avoid it. We don't watch the news at home. Uh, we talk about current events a little. My oldest is a current events junkie, but we try to keep him at bay just a little bit because yeah. he always wants to talk about it. So we keep the negativity out as best we can. And once we're home, we, we think of our home as a, I mean, this is cliche and sounds kind of dumb, but kind of like a heaven on earth. This is, mm-hmm. this is the place where you can come to be safe. You can say what you feel. You can ask for the things you need. You can get away from the worries of the world and the badgering of your friends, or maybe you got somebody picking on you at school, whatever. For me, this is a place where I go. I don't have to, I don't have to, hustle you know i don't have to go out and make a buck i don't have to collect i don't have to pay a bill i just i do but but what i mean is once i'm here especially when friday evening hits once i'm here i've got hours and hours and hours where i'm going to be happy period Mm -hmm. if my wife and i are going through a thing and she's sequestered herself in our bedroom because she's irritated at me and angry and we're having a fight that's her thing and i'm going to come downstairs and turn on a basketball game and i'm going to be happy it's a mindset just like it was when i was locked up mm-hmm. and so i say all that and it sounds really good but it's really hard yeah because life life mostly is a series of disappointments i mean that's terrible to say but that's the truth people will always disappoint you mm-hmm. Your, your spouse will always disappoint you in some ways. You'll always disappoint yourself. Your parents will disappoint you. Your children will disappoint you because they didn't pick the career you wanted or they didn't pick whatever. Everyone disappoints. Mm-hmm. Most things in life, you know, most putts you take don't go in the hole. Right. Most steaks you cook are kind of tough. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Life is essentially a series of disappointments sprinkled in with some... Um, wonderful successes there are some in there yeah so if you're waiting for the successes 
to make you be happy and have a good mindset, your life's going to totally suck. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do this all the time. Yeah. If you can find that you can shut out all the bullshit for a certain number of hours every day or week or whatever, and just be happy with what you have, that might be, you might be a single person living in an apartment in the city where you feel totally lonely and that sucks, Mm -hmm. but you can still carve out a life. I lived in a federal prison that was made for 300 people with 600 men. They were supposed to be low-level, nonviolent offenders like me. Mm-hmm. They weren't because the system's so overcrowded. We had people that had been lifelong gangbangers, and we had, you know, we had Eastern European gang people in there. We had people who had committed tons of violent crime. My very first cellmate was a guy who had been in the system since he was a child, basically. Mm-hmm. He was a I don't know, 50-something, 60-something-year-old man from Texas who I had nothing in common with. He was a violent criminal and had been his whole life, and he'd worked his way down into the system, so he was in there with me. And, you know, even in there, the process was the same. Mm -hmm. I could still carve out a part of my life and make it good. Mm -hmm. And um, it's shocking that the process of being happy is the same no matter where you are in life. You're divorced and it sucks and you're living in an apartment by yourself and you're lonely and looking for somebody else, it sucks. I'm sure Mm -hmm. if you're recently released from incarceration and can't find a job and you're mentally ill and you're suffering PTSD and it's terrible, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Even if me, like me, I've got a great life. I've got a wife and children and a job and things are going along just fine. There's still things that suck every day. Yeah. You have to have a reason to look for good and to be happy. Mm-hmm. And that reason can be whatever it is. For me, that reason is number one, I prefer it. I much prefer to be happy, mm-hmm. but on a bigger scope, I want to create an environment in my home so that my children will want to grow up and create the same environment in their home. I'm a traditionalist. I want my kids to have kids. I want grandkids. I want them to come over for Sunday dinner and I want to play with my grandkids and I want to have you know, all the things that I had in my childhood and yeah. the way, what the things I remember, I want it that way. And I'm trying to create it that way. It won't happen that way. You know, it won't be perfect. Yeah. But that's the thing. I have this shared vision, this, this goal together with my wife and I, where we want to create this heaven type of environment here in our home with our family so that they always feel like this is a place they can go. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of my main purpose and in following that purpose, my I'm happier, my own, I'm happier myself. Yeah. And so anyway, this would be a good weekend for me just to stay drunk because <laughs> of what happened yesterday at work. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 just be mad the whole time. But what a mess. What would I what would I miss if I did that? How much time would I miss if I just stayed bitter? Last night, my my son and his fiance were here. Uh, my other son had a date with a girl he's been chasing a little bit, and he brought her over to meet us. And we all sat here on the couch and we talked and got to know each other. And it was a marvelous thing. Well, what if I had given in to despair mm-hmm. and, you know, had 10 beers and gone to bed? What would I have missed? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's a good example just yesterday of when you give in to despair and give away your own free time because what for whatever reason, man, you're giving up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I know I lost everything for a lot of years 
so many moments and I won't lose any more, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and again, it comes back to mindset and the thing that resonated for me is, you know, and it's something I try to preach um, is happiness is a choice and we can make yeah. that choice oh, every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you well said. Um, as we get to the end here, one of the, or a couple of things I wanted to understand, and I, I know you've touched on it a lot, but what was it like being in that prison? You mentioned there was obviously a lot of violent people there. How were you able to navigate that? What kind of relationships did you build? Um, and, and how do you look at that time? I look at it, it's really weird. I look at it as, it's hard to even imagine that it happened. The differences in the worlds are so stark that it's almost like I'm two people, one that lives in this life and one that lives in that life. It's a really, it's really weird to try to, you know, gel the two together because they're so different. Mm -hmm. You'll be, you'll be interested to hear this and people usually are that even in an environment where a lot of the people there were what society would consider to be bad people. Mm -hmm. It turns out most of them were just people. They weren't so different than the people I interact with every day in business. Uh, they had some trauma in their past. Mm -hmm. um, I've written this before. I had nine different cellmates in my time and every single one of them had either no father that they never knew, you know, an absent neglectful father or an abusive father, every single one of them, not one of them had a good family life. They all suffered from drug addiction. Most of them mental illness. Most of them were just people who had some never had a chance in the world because of their upbringing, some because of their environment, some made mistakes and then couldn't get out of those mistakes. Mm -hmm. But even people that it would be what you would consider, what I would have considered before, like the worst people, I got to know these people and turns out they were pretty much just people mm. and wished their lives were different. I mean, there's obviously exceptions to that rule. There's real psychos that, you know, are unredeemable essentially, but as a general rule, if you showed respect and followed the unwritten rules, and there were many, mm -hmm. you didn't have to worry too much. Now, sometimes that meant you might have to fight. Yeah. Uh, that was part of the deal. It wasn't constant. It wasn't, you know, necessarily like the movies, but you did have to stand up for yourself. Um, if And so there was some of that. There was worry of that. I had some real challenges early on because I didn't expect it and wasn't prepared for that lifestyle. And, you know, I took some hard knocks a couple of times and had to stand up for myself, which was also very painful. But over time, I developed respect. People respected me. I respected them. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was, uh, but it's, it's so funny to think about an environment where, like, now I'm going to have a lawyer send a letter these people that don't pay me yeah well if i was in prison i would get a piece of rope uh you know i get a piece of rebar from the construction guys and i'd go find a guy and smack him up with the rebar and all it would take would be one time mm -hmm. and and then everybody respects you and nobody messes with you and people pay on time and do what they're supposed to do i mean it sounds stupid and it doesn't even sound real i can't even i can't even put myself back in that life even though i know that i live there i've got some of the scars to prove it yeah um, but it's interesting that people are really just people. And some of those people who were lifelong prisoners and reprobates essentially became good friends. 
and I've stayed in contact with them. Uh, here I come from this, you know, middle-class, white, Christian little town in the mountains in Idaho. And one of my closest friends is, you know, a pot-smoking Buddhist from Northern California, from the, from, the, from the Green Triangle. One of my closest friends is a hardcore biker gang guy with a barcode tattooed across the top of his bald head because he's been in and out of the system so much. He just tattooed his number right onto his head. Uh, I ate lunch for months, you know, with a guy who had the word killer tattooed across his knuckles, you know? So yeah. it's, it turns out when you get to know him, you can almost have a conversation just like this. Yeah. And so people are just people. Mm-hmm. Most people are good and bad. And depending on their environments, it's kind of how they turn out. That's not a perfect rule of thumb, but that's there. And if you're willing to look, there's redeeming qualities in everybody. Mm-hmm. but I did have to learn a different measure of toughness. Um, we saw some bad stuff. We saw lots of suicide. We, mm-hmm. um, I took a job as the medical orderly because it paid more, which when I say more, it paid 17 cents an hour, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that was, that was the best job I could get. And it gave me a chair and a nice little place to sit. But part of my job was I was the blood cleanup man. So I got the hepatitis shots and I was trained in how to, safely clean up blood. And so, you know, I had to go into a bathroom and, and there was blood on the ceiling and the windows and the walls, like someone had butchered a pig in there and I had to clean it up. And that was a, a unique, a unique thing. Yeah. Um, I saw, saw some, some tough things that still are challenging. I saw young people who had severe heroin addictions die from coming down off of heroin. You know, they'd come straight from the street um, one young man in particular was very young and had no business being there, but he was a heroin addict and mm. he didn't last two weeks. And the, the, the recovery from being high for so long killed him. Mm. Th- those events, you know, stay with you. And, you know, I'm supposed to see a, tra- I was supposed to see a pro- trauma counselor as part of my probation. I never did. I've always just used my journal. Uh, maybe I should have, I don't know. I've never had much success with counselors or shrinks, but um, you know, there's real pain there. There's real trauma there, but there's also real friendship there and real lessons mm-hmm. that were learned in a crucible of crisis. Cause there, you know, there was a lot of those crises. And so you had that plus the lessons of how do I handle my family and everything else? It was, it was quite a thing. And consequently, most people don't come out very mentally stable. Right. Uh, the suicide the suicide rate amongst released inmates is higher than it is amongst inmates, which is a shocking thing. Mm. Um, of of you know my what I would consider twenty close friends, four have committed suicide in the time they've been out. That's a that's a big number. Yeah, and I think that's probably around. I think you've mentioned it probably around being able to integrate into society because they think it's so hard they come back and everyone looks at them differently they can't get jobs they can't you know they probably lost their family members children spouses so yeah i mean they either go back in or they commit suicide is very common it's mm -hmm. devastating absolutely devastating and a lot of them the addictions that got them in there aren't gone you know um I always talk to my children, you know, go ahead and make mistakes in life, but don't, don't get addicted to drugs, mm. you know, those types of things, because man, that stuff holds on to you forever. Yeah. It holds on to you forever. And, and that's the, 
that's that's devastating for so many of those people because they get back out and they get right back into it. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of crystal meth traffickers in there, and they never stood a chance mm-hmm. because it wasn't just the drug; it was the lifestyle that crazy meth lifestyle that they were going to go straight back into. Yeah. So unless they were going to get sent to a different part of the country where they knew nobody to start all the way over and somebody give them a job and a chance, they have low, low, low probability of staying out or staying alive. It's devastating. Mm -hmm. It's also wonderful when you see people do well, the fellow with the tattoo across his head of the, the barcode and his number, he got home and he's done wonderful. He moved to a different town, moved in with a sister, found a woman that he loves, got married in a church and he's happy as he could be. So there are, there are, and he did 30 years. Wow. He did 30 years, but he's got a great life now. I, I hear from him once a month and uh, you know, you'd never know other than the barcode on his head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that, Brad. And you know, one of the things I've taken from this uh, and this has been a gift for me too, is, is your outlook on life and, and the mindset as we've talked about many times during this episode. And one of the things I picked up early from you is based on our choices, obviously, you know, like you were in prison, that's reality, but based on our choices and our mindset, we can choose prison for ourselves every day, even if we're not physically in it. So what are some things you would like to share uh, as we come to an end here for people that are often stuck in those thoughts and, and that mindset of, oh, my life isn't great or things can always be better based on your own experience. That's a great question. And I get, I've got about 10,000 followers on Twitter mm-hmm. and I get two to three messages a day with that question. I've got an addiction to pornography and it's ruining my marriage. What do I do? Mm. I'm 20 years old. I have no money. I'm living on my friend's couch. You know, what do I do? My life's terrible because of this and that. What do I do? Because you're absolutely right. You don't have to be behind bars to be imprisoned. Most of us are imprisoned by our own decisions and our own addictions and our own mindsets all the time. Mm -hmm. They inhibit us and hold us down from, from being what we could be. But what I would say is do the process that I did with paper and pencil. The, The steps are these one, you have to be totally honest with yourself. What is it that's holding you down? It's probably something you did or you can change. Even if, you were abused or neglected and you have these terrible experiences in your life, that isn't your fault, mm-hmm. certainly. But there's still things that you're doing to hold yourself down. So first of all, be super, super honest. Don't, you don't have to tell anybody because maybe it's embarrassing, but you can certainly write it down on paper. Make a list of all the things that you're doing that are keeping you from having the life you want. That's number one. Honesty is number one. Number two is humility to change. People think of humility as weakness. Humility is not weakness. Humility is strength. Mm. Humility is saying that I see that I have something wrong that's causing me pain. I'm humble enough to change it Mm -hmm. because if I'm too prideful to change it, I never change because, well, what can I do and whatever. So the first thing is to be completely honest with yourself. The second thing is to be completely humble and willing to make the changes you need to make. The third thing is to be totally flexible because you're going to fail and start over at number one again. It's just this, it's this constant process. And so I would say to anyone who is stuck with whatever, whether you're addicted to drugs, pornography, don't have a good job, can't find a good wife, going through a divorce, who cares? They're all bad things or might just be 
you're just depressed every day and you don't know why. You can't figure it out. Start with looking at yourself honestly, which can be very painful. And then be humble enough to change the stuff on the list. Maybe you have a list of 50 things. Mm. Pick an easy one. Pick an easy one. Well, I keep losing my job because I can't get out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's so common. You can't believe how common that is. Well, for crying out loud, that's an easy one to fix. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Set your alarm and make a habit. Work in, you know, whatever. Uh, You know, you, you hear these professional speakers talk about making your bed, which is so stupid. But it isn't stupid because some people don't accomplish anything in a day. Mm -hmm. Well, if you got up on time and made your bed and tidied up your room, you might feel differently about yourself. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I guess that's the message. The message is stop lying to yourself. I wrote a tweet yesterday that said the second you stop lying to yourself is is when your life is going to change. You have to stop lying to yourself. Forget lying to others. We'll deal with that later. Yeah. Stop lying to yourself then have the humility to pick a few things off of that list of negative traits and, and, and work on them. The cool thing about fixing small things is it becomes a habit. And then you can look at one of the bigger things on the list and go, I think I can probably fix that one. Yeah. And you'd be shocked. You know, one of the cliches, the constant BS on Twitter and Instagram and everything else is you disappear for six months and work on yourself. When you come back, you're a different person, something to that effect. And it drives me nuts because it's really stupid. But the sentiment is right. Yeah. You don't have to disappear anywhere, but you can do amazing things in a short period of time if you work on the things that are causing your problems. And then when you fixed one, you work on the next and you never get complacent and you never lie to yourself. You tell the truth and you be humble. Six months can change everything. One month can change everything. One week can change everything. Mm-hmm. And then when you crash back to the back to earth and screw up again, you just start again. Yeah. Yeah. The neat thing about that, and this is the bot, this is the end of the message. Even if you don't get very far and you fail a thousand times, the effort and the process of trying will bring you more joy than if you just sit there and wallow in your misery, because then you can't be joyful. Mm-hmm. Even if you're struggling and failing, the process of trying to make it better will make you happier than if you didn't try. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's beautifully said. And and Brad, I want to. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know how important weekends are for you. So I I appreciate that even more. I know you mentioned your page, but for people that want to find you, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, or any other form of social media online, how can they find you? Twitter, I am at aged underscore survivor. I'm not even sure how it came to be that, but that's what it is. And that's probably the best place. I don't do very good with Instagram. You found me on Instagram and I appreciate that. I, I can't quite figure it out. I can't get any traction there. So I post some stuff there, but if you really want to read what I write, the best place to find me is on Twitter. I even got so brave as to get a TikTok the other day to they tell me it's a great place to advertise and whatever. And I really can't figure that out. So yeah. I, but I am the middle-aged survivor there and on Instagram. Uh, you just uh, search middle-aged survivor, you'll find me. But uh, if you want to read what I write, your best thing you can do is to go to Twitter and search at agent underscore survivor. My, my avatar picture is uh, Cool Hand Luke. Is uh, There's probably people who are too young to know Cool Hand Luke. You'll have to look him up on the internet. But it's Paul Newman in a, a movie about being in prison. So that's my that's my picture. He's quite a bit handsomer than me. <laughs> More handsome. Handsomer is not a word. Anyway, come on over and read and interact with me because I really enjoy it. It's been a great blessing to be on there and to write the things I feel and think and have learned. 
And I've found that people really respond to the message and have a need for what we're talking about. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time and being vulnerable and sharing so much. So thank you. Thank you. Well, that's the end of the episode. And thank you again for tuning into another season. Season three will be coming out later in the summer. So stay tuned. And until next time.